are to ensure that the radio serves the needs of the community, approve the budget, oversee programming, and create policy. Please don't take your choice lightly. Get to know the candidates running in this election and make an informed choice. Visit PacificaElections2010.org for the campaign schedule and more information about the candidates running. Contact Les Radke at les underscore kpfk at pacifica.org or call 213-261-7488. Remember to send in your vote before September 30th or drop it off at the station on September 30th till midnight. Thank you. That's what is good about KPFK. You do get that it's the people not the manufacturers that are selling us all the cheap soap and toothpaste and general unhealthy junk, but it's really information that is quite usable. I'm Joyce Clark from Bellingham, Washington. I listen to KPFK as much as I possibly can, and I do support it. KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and if you're in Bellingham or anywhere else in the world, www.kpfk.org. This is KPFK Interim Program Director Alan Minsky here to announce that KPFK has introduced a new programming lineup for the fall. We have some exciting new shows that we hope you will find both enjoyable and illuminating. To see the new programming schedule and learn about our new shows, visit the KPFK website at www.kpfk.org. Up next, a brand new public affairs magazine show hosted by Sarah Harris called Here in the City. If you're tuning in to hear Aisha Mason, her show, The Way Forward, will now air Fridays at 2 p.m. Up next... Here in the City with Sarah Harris. After the rain, the temperature drops and covered in ice with my window top. Hello, KPFK listeners. It's Here in the City. Today is Monday, September 20th, 2010. I'm Sarah Harris. And I'm King Anye, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape every Monday at 2 p.m. Coming up on the program today, we visit with folks rethinking urban green space. You know, people are just walking down the street and they come and they eat with us and they grab some plants and they hang out. So it's basically like a way to show the surrounding community that, look, this is actually, it can work here. And we take a trip to the beach. I've seen them as as large as six feet. That's unusually large for a leopard shark. And they start looking a bit imposing at that size. Usually they'll be three to five feet. And they are much more afraid of you than you should be afraid of them. They will do nothing to harm you at all. And now here's the news. According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, the longest recession of the post-World War II era is apparently so last year. The Bureau announced today that the downturn that started in December 2007 ended in June of last year. The 18-month contraction was longer than the 1973-75 and 1981-82 recessions. The private nonprofit nonpartisan research organization said in a statement on its website its determination the recession ended has little to say about the current state of the economy. The National Bureau of Economic Research, however, acknowledged, quote, the committee did not conclude that economic conditions since that month have been favorable or that the economy has returned to operating at normal capacity. 
Instead, the committee determined only that the recession ended and recovery began in that month. So technically, we're in recovery, but we're still wounded. President Obama weighed in today at a town hall-style meeting hosted by CNBC, saying even though economists may say the recession officially ended last year, obviously for the millions of people who are still out of work, it is still very real for them. He was also quoted as saying something that took 10 years to create is going to take a little more time to solve. In other national news, the U.S. Senate is holding a vote tomorrow on an annual Pentagon policy bill that includes language repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell the Clinton-era policy that bans gays from openly serving in the U.S. military. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid is sponsoring the bill and writes on his website that, quote, he believes Americans should not be denied the opportunity to serve their country just because of their sexual orientation. The House already passed the bill that would repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell language this summer. So that means if the Senate comes through, it can go to Mr. Obama's desk to be signed. The Senate's version of the bill will also have an amendment to promote the DREAM Act that helps young undocumented immigrants become legal U.S. residents and thus eligible for a host of constitutional rights as well as other benefits. You're listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, and online at kpfk.org. We're here every Monday at 2 p.m. bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape. In local news... This morning at Locke High School in South Los Angeles, a mobile eye clinic arrived to provide free exams and eyeglasses to students. The clinic will visit six other charter schools in South and East Los Angeles this week. In other charter school news, last week the Academic Performance Index scores were released for the Los Angeles Unified School District. The test peg to the index measures the basic reading and math skills of public school students across California. Overall, Students in the Los Angeles Unified School District improved their scores this year. Charter schools did exceptionally well relative to their number. Here in the city, Sabiha Khan asks what that may say about the charter school approach to public education. LA Unified School District reported an overall increase of 16 points in its Academic Performance Index, or API, from last year. With a score of 709 out of a possible 1,000, LAUSD exceeded the state average by three points. Three of the top 10 performing LAUSD schools were charter schools. Charter schools are often described as the silver bullet to fix what's wrong with the public school system. In many cases, their small size and mission-driven focus help students improve. But despite the successes of many charter schools, just as many fail. USC education professor Gilbert Henschke gives some context to the school numbers. I think one of the issues that's showing up more and more in the conversations about charter schools It's not that they are all doing good or they're doing bad as a category. It's that there's a number of them that are doing quite good things, but there's also a number that are not doing so well. And because there's so much autonomy there, there's autonomy to screw up as well, as well as do good. Having said that, I think the real issue now is is an oversight of these entities that uh, doesn't provide the same handcuffs that all public schools have. We, We don't want to get back to the same problem we're trying to get out of. At the same time, we want to sort of manage and, and hold up our side, if you will, the bargain, which is to, to take responsibility for allowing these schools to run that are not doing so well. Charter school teacher Allison Mills says her district, Aspire Public Schools, takes full responsibility for its students' progress. This year, Aspire Schools as a whole scored an API of 824, the highest in the state for districts with more than 20 schools and a majority low-income student population. Everyone is holding each other accountable to 
to what is happening in the classroom. There's constant reflection about what did we teach, how did we teach it, what are the results of that? Like, how can we measure student learning? If I give an assessment, if I do something in my class and I give them a test or an essay, and I don't actually look at that essay, I don't read it critically and figure out, okay, am I, am I assessing them on what I actually taught? How did they do on it? And the areas where they really struggled or they didn't show mastery, if I just leave it and I don't reteach it and I move on to the next unit, then they're not going to learn anything. They're not going to have any achievement. Mill said her charter school's management approach was much more hands-on than the traditional school at which she started her career. But she finds that both types of schools have teachers who are dedicated to helping their students succeed. For Here in the City, I'm Sabiha Khan. And I'm Sarah Harris. This is Here in the City. The Los Angeles City Attorney's Office announced on September 7th that it has filed criminal charges against 33 individuals involved in three separate incidents of unlawful assembly that caused traffic disruptions in Los Angeles. All 33 of the individuals were involved in nonviolent civil actions in the streets of Los Angeles in support of immigrants' rights and against federal tactics of deportation. I spoke to Garrick Ruiz of Todos Somos Arizona, who is one of the individuals named in the case. Garrick, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us what happened and what your message was, why everyone was there? Sure. We um, That day was just a few days after... Um, SB 1070 was signed in Arizona. We chose to do it in front of the, the Federal Downtown Immigration Center here in Los Angeles because SB 1070, while it's horrible and, uh, you know, really kind of takes things a step further in terms of anti-immigrant hysteria in this country, uh, what's happening every day in all across the country um, in terms of deportations, in terms of, of the destruction of, of families, loved ones being torn from each other. Uh, that's happening every day. It's happening here in downtown Los Angeles. It's happening across the country. It's not just in Arizona. And SB 1070 is currently in partial effect and still being contested in the courts, correct? Correct. So what happened? What was the, um, the action that your organizations took? Can you describe what it looked like? Uh, sure. May 6th, specifically, um, <clears throat> we blocked uh, the street in front of, we blocked the driveway, actually, in front of the detention center. Um, we're able to s- significantly disrupt operations of the center. We were even told by some of the security guards that everything inside was shut down uh, because of us for about six hours on May 6th. Um, And so we felt it was very effective at sending a message, not only about 1070, but really, like I said, about the the problematic nature of immigration enforcement across the board uh, in this country. And on July 29th, uh, again, members of Todos Somos Arizona blocked uh, the street at Wilshire and Highland in front of the headquarters of Wackenhut Corporation, a security, a gigantic security corporation that uh, not only, uh, you know, literally drives the buses uh, to deport people um, and actually physically deports people um, in Arizona, but also, again, across the country, including in places like Los Angeles, uh, is contracted by ICE uh, to transport detainees. And we actually, on May 6th, were able to block a Wackenhut bus as well from going into the detention center. Um, and so we've really tried to highlight how federal immigration policies are a problem, but also these corporations that are profiting. A private 
company contracted by the U.S. government using uh, tax dollars, not unlike what's happening in um, the different war zones that this government is maintaining around the world. Wackenhut has been a contractor for private prisons and prison services around the United States and Texas and Alabama and elsewhere um, for over a decade now. Exactly. And that's that's some of the linkages that we're really trying to build here, that this isn't just an immigrant issue. What Wackenhut is doing, as you say, in terms of, of uh, running private prisons is not just about immigrants, but really about an attack on communities of color in general in this country and the huge uh, criminalization of immigrant communities, of communities of color, um, and of poor folks generally. Why is this all happening at once? From your perspective, um, is it unusual, and why would you all be facing your charges at the same time? Well, um, I want to expand it out just a little bit, because it's the 33 were targeted specifically in a press release from the city attorney on September 7th, um, and so he's he's clearly mounted a campaign against us who are who all were um, mainly focused around immigrate you know justice for immigrants however this week also uh, people are being arraigned who are fighting for who are arrested um, in protest fighting for uh, transportation uh, justice fighting the fare hikes that the MTA recently put into place uh, folks who um, are fighting for housing justice and were attacked by the LAPD in City Hall a few months ago um, and arrested, as well as um, some, at least some of the folks who were arrested in Westlake a couple weeks ago in protest to the LA, of the LAPD's murder of a Guatemalan day laborer immigrant. Um, and so while he, the city attorney, has put out this, this press release and has really gone after 33, it's really much broader. He's really going after dissent in general. It would seem that anyone who stands up um, for justice, whether it's for immigrant justice, economic justice, um, et cetera, uh, the city attorney seems to be sending a message that that's not going to be tolerated. And that seems to be why he's uh, putting all of us into this one week and starting our trials this one week to really send a message to people that, that protest, dissent, us exercising our rights on, in a democracy will not be tolerated in Los Angeles. Um, one last question for you, Garrick Ruiz from Todos Somos Arizona. What are you all facing potentially in terms of, uh, of charges and of sentencing? There's actually a variety of charges that people are facing. They include resisting and obstructing a peace officer, failure to disperse, and blocking a sidewalk. Um, in terms of uh, penalties, the, again, he would seem, based on his press release, uh, that, he, that he is going after maximum possible penalty. So in those uh, charges, some hold a maximum penalty of six months in jail, and others hold a maximum of one year in jail. And he at least is, is threatening to go for maximum penalties. Thank you, Garrick Ruiz. Thank you for talking with us on Here in the City, and um, the best of luck to you. Hopefully we'll check in with you again soon. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. We actually called the city attorney's office to inquire about the significance of lumping these arraignments together, although they occurred weeks apart. Um, they have yet to return our calls, but you can reach them at 213-978-8100.
This is Here in the City. You are listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Sarah Harris. And I'm King Anya. On Here in the City, we will be traveling around Los Angeles hearing from people involved in the arts and environment in the interest of social change. For our regular series, The Street Beat, Rethinking the Rules of the Road in Los Angeles, our producer Luis Sierra Campos and King Anya went out to look at Parking Day LA, which took place on September 17th. And we have on the line Stephen Box, who is one of the organizers of Parking Day LA. Stephen, welcome to Here in the City. Well, thanks very much for having me. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Um, first, kind of explain, what is Parking Day? Parking Day LA is a simple one-day event that's held around the city where folks from all different walks, if you will, actors, activists, advocates, community organizers, artists, architects, um, people that are interested in open space, green space, and public space, step up to the curb, put a quarter in the meter, and proceed to transform a curbside metered parking space into a park just for the day. What does that mean, to transform a curbside parking space into a park for those who may not have a clue? Well, you know, I think everybody's familiar with curbside parking, uh, in fact, in L.A. County, there are seven parking spaces for every car, which is an interesting commitment to parking. And so one of the things that we're trying to challenge is that priority, if you will, of curbside parking um, everywhere, but a lack of parks that actually makes us a leader in the nation um, for being park poor. So the city of L.A. is actually a parking space-rich but park-poor city. And so for one day, people all offer their take on what a, a park would look like, and you have all different iterations. Um, in Westwood, a group turned, uh, they, they uh, embraced the concept of a town square. And so in Westwood Village, they asked a simple question, what would a town square look like? And folks from around the world have an idea of what a town square looks like. And so they created one in, in, in Westwood Village. Uh, on Hollywood Boulevard at Hudson, a group asked the simple question, what would a ped plaza look like, a pedestrian plaza? And so they created a space on Hudson. They actually took an entire street and closed it to automobiles but opened it to people. And so they had artists doing chark, chalk drawings, they had people um, actually playing games, if you will. And so in Westwood Village, they were playing badminton. There were hula hoop contests over on Hollywood Boulevard. In other words, when people have space, they, their ba behavior begins to change, and they start to create community. You actually had a group uh, at USC teach a, a professor taught class in a parking space and embraced the fact that some of our uh, best public space is right there on the street. Right. So I was there for that. Yeah, our oh, street no. for people. Yeah, actually, Anya, uh, King Anya went out, and he, he was there with that class at USC. Yeah, well, I went to a mm -hmm. few of them out in the day, and uh, it, it seemed like a very uh, synchronized, very organized and coordinated event. Um, it's the fourth annual parking day took place uh, this past Friday. Um, how did you guys start this concept of transforming parking spaces into parks? Well, the, uh, the concept or the original iteration took place in 2005 in San Francisco. A group called Rebar took uh, some sod, a park bench, and a tree and transformed one simple parking space into a park 
and then step back to see what would ha- happen. And within minutes, a gentleman walking down the sidewalk in this um, industrial environment, completely gray, there was not a, a speck of green in the entire area, walked down the sidewalk, saw the little park, sat down, and then relaxed. And so it was a simple little artistic expression, if you will, by the artists at Rebar, and since then, it has grown and it's gone around the world. How do people find out about it, Stephen? It's a completely crowdsourced uh, endeavor. And if you go to parkingdayla.com, people can sign up. But it's one of those things that's gone viral. Simply, it's kind of a leaderless, if you will. Uh, people opt in. And so this year we had... Uh, some newfound best friends in Long Beach just did some absolutely brilliant parks. One of them, a bookstore, recreated uh, a reading lounge on the street and offered people books if they'd like to sit down, relax, and read a book. And um, we had some uh, interesting opportunities by visionaries. For example, downtown at 5th and Spring Street, there's a group of neighborhood council advocates who are trying to build a park uh, at Tipton and Spring, and so theirs was a vision statement where they enlisted people, uh, people support, wouldn't this be a great place for a park? And you saw that also at East Hollywood, where there was a petition. Mm. Uh, there was another one at Echo Park that resulted in a petition. So people had come with different messages and with different purposes. For some, it was uh, a statement of um, what things could look like. For others, it, over on, um, in Mar Vista, they actually had this visioning exercise where they laid out uh, a model of the city and asked, what do you think it should look like? How would transportation work? What would you like to see? And then for some people, it was simply about creating community, you know, where uh, uh, they set up a barbecue. Um, they had opportunities for people to engage, like, such as the town square over in Westwood. So let's go to East Hollywood and hear what uh, some of the folks there did from the East Hollywood Community Coalition. Stephen, we're going to listen to a little piece of tape here. My name's Jennifer Moran. I live um, about a block and a half away from here, so I'm kind of a resident of the neighborhood. I'm also an activist and an artist. What did you guys create in the corner of Madison and Santa Monica? Absolutely. Well, we call the park the East Hollywood Greens. Um, you know, it's a very low-concept park. It's not an exactly an artistic concept as much as it is a demonstration of what it could be like to have a park in an area where there is one needed. So, we... Um, Just walk us to it. Yeah, we put up some murals that were decorated last year by children who came to our park last year in the same location. We hope to have more children come this year after school lets out. Um, So they say the East Hollywood Neighborhood Council, because the East Hollywood Neighborhood Council sponsored all of the costs of our park. Okay. Um, So show us what... We bought... Well, we got these trees. These are crepe myrtle trees. They do very well in this climate and we hope to give them up for adoption by the end of the day. Uh We have agave plants, which are also very robust, hardy plants. Um, We have a lovely park swing that came out of my backyard and is here today to reside as a place to enjoy the the sun and the the air and the buses roaring by, and the people and the company. And we have um, a lot of fabric that um, we, Acquired from Art Cycle, 
which was another event that we had on Santa Monica Boulevard earlier in the year. So we got these swatches of fabric, which are awnings over our park and provide shade. So can you explain to me what, what's... The, oh, the fountain? Okay, yes. David Bell, the president of the East Hollywood Neighborhood Council, as it happens, um, has a tradition of designing a fountain made from um, lost objects, or not lost, sorry, uh, illegally dumped objects in East Hollywood. So the sink and the tub were found in um, the alley behind our house. And he just assembles the plumbing, you know, relatively on the, on the fly. And Chase White of Recycled Movie provided us with those solar panels um, because we needed power to run the pump. So um, we have a little uh, sink that has been thrown away and put onto two cinder blocks inside of a, what looks like a baby pool and water is running through the faucet on the sidewalk. So that's what our fountain looks like. It's not a glamorous fountain, but it's an honest fountain. <laughs> it's a, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and then what do we have? We so have a picnic table with tamales and lemonade. We have, um, and we are, those are free for all of our guests today. We have a hundred of them, so I hope we have a lot of guests. And we, you know, we'll go through them by the end of the day. I'll eat another one. And then we have um, this uh, other swatch of grass and plants that Chase White, again from Recycled Movie, brought to embellish our, our park and make it, you know, more of a human habitat. So, cool. which as you can tell, I mean, this is a challenging environment for, for human beings. So, um, we need, we need these, these flowers and these plants and these shade structures and this food to make it a place that we want to sit for the day. Have you had any hassle from the, like, you know, parking meter people? Because, you no. know, you've, you've taken over the parking meters, right? I know. Well, see, it's so funny. First of all, we have a lot of support from LAPD. They are very much on our side for this. They, they're behind the Parking Day LA movement as much as they can be. And um, the truth is there's no fight for these parking meters because guess what? Nobody can get into that light yard, so no need to have parking on this street metered. <laughs> um, you know, if there were a need, if these were all stores, I would say, yeah, there might be some people who are disgruntled about us taking over their parking meters, but really we're not imposing on anybody here by having these um, parks because truly nobody uses these parking meters during the day because of this, this facility. There's nothing to go to here. That was here in the city producer Luis Sierra Campos speaking with a representative of the East Hollywood Neighborhood Council on Parking Day LA. And we're here in the studio talking to Stephen Box, who's one of the organizers of Parking Day LA. How you doing? All right. It was an excellent park over in East Hollywood, too. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was actually there. It was, it was real dope. Um, you were telling us a little before we uh, broke to that how uh, Parking Day uh has a, a start got a start in San Francisco. What makes Parking Day unique uh for Los Angeles in particular? Well, you know, LA is um one, it's completely spread out. It's huge. You know, four hundred and eighty five square miles just in the city of LA. But we also had a park in Glendale. There was another one in Santa Monica. Uh there was one up in Pacoima. 
So we don't have the concentration that other cities have. If you look at San Francisco, they had a bunch of great parks. That's where it started. But they literally are, are concentrated. Now, we have three bike rides this time, um, and I tried my hardest to hit them all, but it's a big city. And uh, um, so I think that one thing that's unique about L.A. is we are the capital of the car culture, so we are really challenging the concept of uh, a commitment to parking versus a commitment to parks. It's a shame that it's an either-or proposition. I don't think it needs to be. But this is a great opportunity to, to stir a dialogue or a conversation. So I think that's one thing that makes it unique. The second thing is that um, ours was completely crowdsourced, if you will. In other words, we offered people an opportunity to opt in and participate, but it's completely um, freeform, if you will. Uh, and, and people all have their own iterations or expressions. And I think that's just one of the great... Uh, demonstrations of the creativity and innovation that we find here in Los Angeles. You know, the unique opportunities for expression uh, that allow us to really celebrate the fact that it's the most diverse community in the world. Right. right. Uh, it was actually funny that you say that we do kind of have a uh, emphasis of parking over parks, and it was kind of interesting uh -huh. to see on this day, um, parking was a little bit uh, a little bit more tricky around some of these displays. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, we almost like looking for a few of them, almost burned a little more gas than probably we should have. Uh, but um, it was definitely well worth it. How, how do people get to be a part of this? Like, how do you organize uh, or how do you call out for people to to uh, volunteer? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a few ways. Uh, the first one is to go to parkingdayla.com uh, because we're, we're going to be um, regrouping it in the next couple of weeks and then preparing for next year because there's some lessons to be learned and some opportunities for us to capitalize on. Uh, the second thing is you can go to um, Facebook. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash Parking Day LA. And there are, um, so you can find us on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, um, and online. And, and just send us an email, uh, info at parkingdayla.com. And we'll invite you to the next meeting, um, or you can opt in from a distance if you don't want to come to the meetings. But we're going to be... Um, working during the year to turn some of these locations into parks, permanent parks. So Echo Park, East Hollywood, and downtown are three areas that are going to go permanent. The other thing that's more policy-driven is what is our open space, public space, and green space commitment. Mm. That is a really good point. We'll come back after our break and talk more with Stephen Box from Parking Day LA about those policy issues. This is here in This is KPFK Interim Program Director Alan Minsky here to announce that KPFK has introduced a new programming lineup for the fall. We have some exciting new shows that we hope you will find both enjoyable and illuminating. To see the new programming schedule and learn about our new shows, visit the KPFK website at www.kpfk.org. You are listening to KPFK's brand new public affairs magazine show with Sarah Harris, Here in the City. If you've tuned in to hear Indie Media on air, you can hear Indie Media on air at its new time slot, Mondays at 8.30 p.m. That is tonight at 8.30 p.m. And now, back to Here in the City with Sarah Harris.
It's here in the city. This is Sarah Harris, and I'm here with your co-host King Anya. And we are speaking with Stephen Box from Parking Day LA, uh, which took place on Friday, the 17th of September, and it was the fourth annual. Stephen, um, you have something on your website which we find to be really intriguing. It's a quote from the architect Le Corboisier, and um, uh-huh. I thought I'd read a little piece of it and then ask okay. you about it. So if you'll right. indulge me. Sure. This, here we go. It's from 1967. The cities will be part of the country. I shall live 30 miles from my office in one direction (laughs) under a pine tree. My secretary will live 30 miles away from it, too. Ooh, I'll have a secretary in the other direction under a pine tree. And we shall both have our own car, and we shall use up tires and wear out road surfaces and gears (laughs) and consume oil and gasoline, all of which will necessitate a great deal of work, enough for all. Oh, yes. You know, uh, times have changed so much. There were some other great quotes in there um, <laughs> that kind of contradict this vision. The point of which is, why aren't we having a conversation today about our vision? Um, that was 1967, that particular quote. And at the time, that may have seemed like a great idea, because keep in mind, gasoline was probably a quarter back then. And we didn't have the impact uh, that we're aware of now, we weren't aware of at the time. But the thing is, missing from the landscape, politically, socially, economically, missing from uh, our arena, if you will, or our environment right now, is this dialogue, this conversation about public space, open space, and green space. And that's just absolutely, if you ask me, a complete abdication uh, of of a vision for the future. Um, Other great cities... And I think L.A. is the greatest city on earth. But other great cities have in their DNA a commitment to public space and open space and green space. And I think that's missing here in in Los Angeles. And if that particular quote from 1967 is shocking today, good, because we've got to get shocked about the fact that our city is just getting bleaker and bleaker. We're number one in uh, traffic congestion. We're number one in, uh, I think, number one or number two in bad air. Um, where our streets are the worst in the, in the country, and yet slowly uh, our infrastructure is crumbling and our green space is literally dwindling, not well, growing. And Los Angeles has had some false starts in trying to return to this concept of um, Olmsteads, of the, the emerald necklace oh. leading from the river out to the sea. And it, there has been some community involvement. Um, I remember when they started the cornfield as a project yes. and turned it into Los Angeles State Historic Park back in 2005, um, and turned it over to a group of artists, which is now called Farm Lab, headed by Lauren Bond, um, but was called at that time not a cornfield. And right. you remember that? Oh, absolutely. Such We had such fun. That was so um, exciting. We, we had bike rides. We did nighttime events out there. And the idea that people were just discovering, there was almost this sort of um, rebel spirit, because people were like going to this great empty place that didn't require permission or, um, or, or um, formatting, or there wasn't this big structure. It was just this idea of, you know, like there's this space over there that no one's really paying attention to, and people are starting to clean it up. Oh, my goodness. And that was just like such a novel concept because it was um, sort of this unwanted land that they revitalized. And then the farm lab 
contribution, uh, I think, was just really exciting that people started, um, you know, hosting events at odd hours. So it kind of turned our, you know, that, that we ignore a lot of uh, our city. Hmm. Well, I think that that was a really exciting way to reposition people's awareness. Well, now let's, let's, uh, let's listen to some more tape that we got. We actually went yeah. out to South L.A., and uh, let's listen Thanks to that for more Parking Day. We're on the corner of Hoover and Jefferson. At USC. So, um, what's your name and uh, where are we? My name is Heather Bleemers, and we're in front of the Starbucks on Hoover, and I'm with the USC graduate students, and we're all urban planning students. So, we're here today to promote sustainable food um, systems by handing out free edible plants to people walking by, and we're also handing out food and snacks that come from edible sources, or sustainable sources. And um, where are we geographically? Right, we are just about one block north of campus, of the USC campus, on um, Hoover and Jefferson, basically. And we're taking over two parking spots. So, yeah. And um, if you could walk us through your space that you've created. Sure. What, like, just walk us through, like, the plants and everything that you've created. Sure, okay. Well, I get a lot from people walking by saying like they don't have space. So I've tried to show people that you can grow food in very small containers. I have like little windowsill containers, just random pots that you can grow edible food in. Even a tire where you can take it and you can, it's waterproof, so you can take it and put a bottom on it and then grow plants. And then in front here we have our little sign and we're giving out seeds and information on how to grow plants. And we have food giveaways here where we have little seedlings and established plants that we're giving to people. And then over here we have our bench where people can come and hang out and sit under the umbrella. And then we had food from Urban Green Cuisine, which is an awesome organization that hooked us up with some sustainably produced sandwiches. And we're just here hanging out. People are biking in and relaxing with us, enjoying some lemonade and enjoying some plants. So just tell me what kind of plants you have. Sure, over here I have some iceberg lettuce, I have some romaine lettuce, I have red onions, uh, collard greens, strawberries, Swiss chard, and we had all kinds of different seeds, a lot of them are gone, beets, carrots, salad, onions, all kinds of different seeds. And can you show me what that is over there? So basically we have here just a, a regular old tire that you can find on the side of the road and I kind of cleaned it up a little bit with the hose. And then you can start from seed or you can start from like small plants and you just fill it up with soil if you're working in a place that you don't mind the bottom getting dirty. If you mind, if you need it to not get dirty, you just put like a little wood or a little plastic underneath with holes. And you just put the seeds in and you put the soil in and you water it once every day. And you can get a nice little overgrowing, special little looking, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's a tire and you wouldn't expect to be able to grow food there. So that's how you would do it. You just plant the seeds, start watering and hope for the best. What are some ideas that you would want the community here in South LA to like kind of adapt from your, 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 your thought process? Right. So as an urban planning student, we look at a lot of maps and some of the maps that we look at is access to healthy food options. And currently where we are standing is a food desert, is what we call a food desert. We do have a grocery store here, but it's not accessible to a lot of the community. It's a mile away from a lot of the houses. Um, so what I'm trying to promote here is that you don't need the grocery stores necessarily to get your food. You know, you don't have to depend on 
you know, private market coming in and providing food for you, you can do it yourself in a very small space and very economically and it's very healthy. You know it's going into the soil, you know it's going into the plants and it's delicious, the food tastes better. So that's kind of what I'm promoting today. Like it's easy to plant your own um, food and to have a really successful crop because we live in Southern California and especially this area because there's not a lot of access to healthy foods. I thought it was a good idea to show people like you can do it even if you start small. Start small, you'll get addicted to it because your food tastes so much better. You'll keep expanding and expanding and expanding and you'll become a, a really experienced gardener just by starting really small. Cool. And um, what does um, parking daily mean to you? To me, it's a way for anybody, you know, you can just be some random person that thinks, yeah, it's great that we have cars and we can get here and there, but there's a lot of space lacking for just wanting to hang out or for open space like parks or even just to come and like learn about information on how to start a garden. So parking day to me means that it's kind of like a statement, like it's kind of bold, like you get to come and you take over this, this parking space where everyone usually sees a car there, but you see people interacting and socializing and you know, people are just walking down the street and they come and they eat with us and they grab some plants and they hang out. So it's basically like a way to show the surrounding community that, look, this is actually, it can work here. Like people maybe think this isn't a good place for open space, but look, it, it is because it attracts people and it's, it's a good way to get more people in, involved in the community and, and grassroots efforts, I guess. That was Luis Sierra Campos on the corner of Hoover and Jefferson for Parking Day Los Angeles. We want to thank Stephen Box for joining us. Uh, you can reach out to him at ParkingDayLA.com. And this is Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM. You're listening to Here in the City. I'm your host, Sarah Harris, and we are here in the studio with Claire Fox, who's been out in the city. Claire, where have you been lately? Well, in the last week, I went and took a tour of Bell Shelter in the city of Bell. And this is a really huge facility where they have an emergency shelter that hosts about 200 people in the summer and up to 400 people in the winter. They also have a wellness program, which is a, li a full-time live-in program for individuals who are transitioning out of homelessness and recovering from substance abuse. And people can live there for up to two years. And I went there because there's a team of community members who are working with staff to create a garden on the facility um, that can hopefully feed, feed the shelter. Um, so they're serving tons of meals, as we'll hear about, as well as offer sort of a therapeutic offering, a therapeutic program, and career pathways for the individuals who are sort of transitioning back into the working world. So how did a big airplane hangar become a shelter in the first place? Well, it's a really interesting history. Um, one of the community members who is helping to lead this effort, his name is Brad Pragerson. He's actually the grandson of a federal judge who in the 80s um, had this idea to convert an army, a former army uh, artillery hangar into a homeless shelter. Um, so basically... My grandfather's on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and he, when he was a district court uh, judge downtown, there was a really horrible winter um, in the early 80s, and people were dying on the streets, homeless people on Skid Row. 
And uh, being the humanitarian that he is, he thought that because the uh, entranceway into the, the courthouse was a fairly large space, that they could put some cots there and house some homeless people. And he brought the idea up at some meeting, and some judges were not only against it, but like furious that he even suggested it. Like it would desecrate that place and really be an awful thing. So it, mm. it was the catalyst to, to this facility. Who lives at the shelter, and how did most people who are there come to be there? Well, it's... Um an emergency shelter for homeless folks. Uh, about a third of the residents there are veterans, and several of the individuals there are um, struggling with substance abuse, whether it's alcoholism or some other sort of substance abuse. And um, a lot of folks are also uh, recently released from prison. So you have folks who have felonies on their records and have had a hard time getting jobs and you know, from various life situations have found themselves homeless. This type of reuse or change of use of, you know, basically a defunct, enormous structure, like what, how forward thinking is that or where else does that happen? Is this something totally new? Um, I mean, I've certainly not seen anything like this in the Los Angeles area. I think the real opportunity around creating a garden and a food self-sufficient facility is that they have all this land. I mean, it's really a massive space. There's these massive hangars that are just sort of storing random uh, TVs, and I think nonprofits rent out, you know, pieces of these warehouses. So there's just a lot of space. There's um, space under roof, and there's space under the sun. So we're going to hear from Brad again, the one of the co-founders of the project. Yeah, so one of the issues that they're looking at uh, at Bell Shelter is they have a very limited food budget, and that really takes a toll on the fresh food items that are incorporated into the meals. Um, and fortunately, the kitchen staff is totally on board for this project, and we got a chance to meet uh, one of the head chefs there, Adriana. So here's their interaction talking about how the garden might factor into kitchen operations. But she's she's one of the chefs. And how many meals a day do you cook? We cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Three meals for how many people? It varies, I know, but in the summer? Almost like 200 people for right now. And in the winter? Like 400. I think their budget for fresh produce is almost $300 a week for, if you calculate it, 1,200 meals a week. For, uh, yeah, so I mean, they're, it's uh, pennies that they're making meals happen. What are your thoughts about the idea of a garden and potentially uh, supplying produce to the kitchen from the garden? It's a good idea, yeah, yeah, good idea. Do you think it will supplement the <laughs> the produce budget? I mean, because that would be free produce right there. So what do you think about that? We will save yeah. a lot of money. Yes, and the budget. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And it will be fresh. And fresh, yes. So yes. she has, she makes a good point, Claire, that, I mean, fresh food is, it doesn't have to be expensive if you grow it. But as we all know, it is expensive when you have to buy it. Absolutely. And that's an issue that really impacts uh, local and regional small farmers. And 
Bell Shelter and the team there that's putting this project together are considering that as well. So how does this Bell Shelter garden factor into sort of a larger food system? And how can they support sustainability on a broader scale um, in terms of the food system? And so one of the sort of second phase of the project after they get the garden up and running is they want to dial in this concept of a a regional food hub. And they want to use one of the warehouses for this effort. You know, the story of Bell Shelter is really one of imagining what's possible. And they're just looking at this saying, we could produce a lot of food here. You're listening to Here in the City, and we are here in the studio with Claire Fox, who is an urban planner and who we'll be checking in with regularly for our segment called Back to the Land about urban farming and food justice movements in and around Los Angeles. Thanks, Claire. Thanks so much. It's here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris, and it's almost the end of summer, so let's take a trip to the beach. We're going out to the corner of Admiralty Way and Via Marina with my daughter. My name is Minerva. We're at the beach today. I'm having fun. And with my mom, we're going to look at the sharks. You heard right. Sharks in the water. And we are going to walk into the water with those sharks. Is it dangerous? James Haw, who heads the Environmental Studies Program at USC and who is an avid scuba diver and snorkeler and who has been in the water with the leopard sharks, says don't worry about it. Uh, Leopard sharks are very docile. Uh, They tend to travel in groups. Uh, You'll very often see uh, the females uh, together in some of the shallow sandy coves uh, trying to stay in the warmer Uh, waters to help with uh, the gestation of their young and I suspect that that's probably part of what's going on uh, in Marina del Rey. We just heard about the uh, water bus that we got on over at the Fisherman's Village and right where you get off we just noticed there's a bunch of people in the water and uh, we waited out there and saw that there looks like sand sharks or leopard sharks and there's some little stingrays. They're really cute. You want to go out and see them? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. I've seen them as as large as six feet. That's unusually large for a leopard shark, and they start looking a bit imposing at that size. Usually they'll be three to five feet, and they are much more afraid of you than you should be afraid of them. They will do nothing to harm you at all. It was pretty amazing just to see them. They would, like, wrestle with each other or jump around. There were stingrays in the water as well, little ones. Yeah, that would be uh, the bat rays, which is uh, the local local ray. There's two things out here. There's sharks and there's stingrays. Stingrays are about yay big. And we just got Darwin. That's probably five foot. And Actually, is... they're all about five, anywhere from four and a half to five. There's a stingray right there. Do you see the little one right there? Don't be scared. Okay, I'll follow you. They're truly beautiful, beautiful creatures to see. They eat crabs, clams, small bony fish, and you know various little things that they find uh, in the sand. Now, if their teeth are strong enough to bite through a crab, shouldn't I be afraid about my toes? Uh, I think you would have to, uh, you would have to put your, put your finger in, a, in the mouth of a leopard shark and squeeze down on its jaws to get it to bite you. Now remember, if they nibble on your leg, hop on the other one. And they don't stick. You can go ahead and walk out. They'll come up this close to you. You can just 
Really? Yeah. But oh, we, we were out there. But can I tell you something? What? I'm afraid to go that close. But they, but dogs do not bite. They're not going to bite me? Yeah. Will they rub up against me? That they haven't done. Um, but, but when you do but, walk out, yeah. kind of shuffle your feet a little bit because there are lots of stingrays around here. And, and if you step on it and it flips out underneath your foot, you'll freak out. Are those fish? I think they're leopard sharks. They can be harmful because you guys are in the water. Right? Why are they so in so close inland? The uh, leopard sharks tend to give birth uh, in, in April and May. Uh, unlike the great white shark, leopard sharks do not migrate over great distances. They remain very local. In terms of why it's different this year, there's a lot of things that are different this year in the coastal waters. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the water temperatures have been quite a bit cooler uh, this year than they normally are. Did you go close to them? What was that like? It was awesome. Ooh. We were over there and this guy comes running over and goes, are you going to go see the sharks? They're just swimming around. <laughs> and like, yeah, they're not bothering anybody, so we decided to come up. A little skeptical, right? <laughs> I know, we were taught that we're supposed to stay away from them, and here we are all running towards them. I got my kid out there, right by the shore. Mommy! <laughs> I just saw a shark! Did you see it? And the warm weather is not just attracting the leopard sharks closer in to the coast of Southern California, it's also attracting some other large marine animals. We've had uh, changes in uh, marine wildlife behavior. So right now we have an unusual concentration of blue whales off of Palos Verdes and Redondo Beach. Uh, we have an unusual concentration of white sharks in Santa Monica Bay, in particular off of uh, Sunset Beach near Gladstones. And we also have the uh, persistence of the leopard sharks in Marina del Rey. Wait, wait, wait. Blue whales, fabulous. Leopard sharks, fun. White sharks? Many of them are juveniles. Uh, I don't know how widely appreciated it is, but until a white shark gets to be about nine or 10 feet in length, uh, mainly eats fish and not marine mammals. Uh, there's a mixture of sharks uh, uh, in this size and, and some sharks up to about 16 feet right now. Uh, attacks on humans tend to be very rare and uh, those uh, frequently uh, would be uh, the, the shark operating under conditions of limited visibility. Shark attacks are really rare. Conservation groups estimate that 73 million sharks are hunted every year for their fins, and then they're thrown back into the sea to die bleeding. Let's hope that fear breeds respect for these creatures. This past week, nine people went before the UN General Assembly to plead for an end to the practice of shark finning. Among them were divers, surfers, and photographers who had lost limbs to shark attacks. One of the survivors told the New York Times, if we want to have an ocean to enjoy, we need sharks. They are an important part of the ecosystem. At the end of our shark journey to Mother's Beach, my daughter said something that sounded very similar. The beach won't hurt us. 
It's just full of our life, right? Go check it out. They're still there at the corner of Admiralty Way and Via Marina at Mother's Beach. We're here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. That's it for our show. We will be back next week with more radio realities in and around Los Angeles. Many thanks to everybody who worked on the show, my co-host and reporter, comedian at large, King Anye, Luis Sierra, Claire Fox, Sabiha Khan, Jesse Lerner, Daniela Gerson, Alan Minsky, Tandi Chimurenga, and our engineer extraordinaire, D'Angelo. We'll be back. Check out the show hereinthecity.org. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Peace. This is KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, and online at www.kpfk.org. You've been listening to Here in the City, radio realities from the urban landscape, and we're here every Monday afternoon from 2 to 3 with Sarah Harris and King Anya. Keep it tuned for The Harrison Show, coming right up on KPFK. The following candidate statement is property of the author and does not officially represent KPFK or Pacifica. Martin.